We bow before you. We trust even in that posture. It's an expression that we understand that you are Lord and we are not. That we are the dependent ones and thus we come seeking that you, the one whom we have worshipped and expressed to be the Lord, that you would grant to teach us, direct us. And so we pray, Father, that you would enable us as we read this passage and think upon it, that you would enable us by your Spirit to receive it, not only to understand it, but to believe that it is true and then to live it out as Jesus has so instructed us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to John in chapter 13. John chapter 13, I want to read verses 1 through 20. John chapter 13, please. And hear the word of God. You know, every time I say that, I just have to just stop, don't I? This is the word of God. If God showed up and you said, speak to us, he would say this. Listen. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send 
receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, I'm here, John chapter 13. You might remember if you are here last Sunday because I want to take up uh, during this semester um, this, uh, what is called this upper room discourse, this time that Jesus spent in this second story or so room with his disciples uh, prior to uh, his crucifixion. Now, when I said this semester, I was marking time out the way we do in university communities. Of course, every good Episcopalian knows that this is coming off the day of Epiphany, which follows after Christmas time, which follows after Advent. And Advent, we we see one who is coming at Christmas. He comes Epiphany. Oh, we see him. For whom has he come? He's come for the world. And, and, and then we, we move into Lent, which is the time that we consider why he had come and what he was to do in his coming. And, and so it's a, a time really in the church of quietness and repentance and all of that as we think through Jesus, his coming and why he had come to deal with our sin. And then Holy Week comes upon us and then Easter, the great resurrection time, and then, and then the ascension of Jesus and then Pentecost. That'll take us out of the semester. But, but that's how the church has historically marked times. So what we're going to do then this semester during this time that precedes Lent and during our time of Lent through Easter, we're going to take up this section of John's, of John's gospel. It's a very significant time, obviously, in the time of the life of Jesus with his disciples. I said this up a room. Jesus had told his disciples that, that there was a room that was prepared, and they were to prepare it and, 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 and secure it, and it would be an upper room, and, and they were then to, to, to celebrate this time of Passover together, this time where they would mark out the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt during the days of Moses. Significant time then, but, 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 but the more significant marker here isn't that it is just simply Passover, but Jesus makes note of the fact that his time had come. See, if we'd been reading through this Gospel of John, what we'd find is that various occasions would crop up and, 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 and something would happen, something significant. Either Jesus would be glorified in some way, you'd, you'd see who he really is, or, 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 the, or, or the, the, his enemies would come against him, but there would be this expression, and the expression that John would put was simply this, but his time hadn't come. But then dramatically in chapter 12, before we get to chapter 13, obviously, but in chapter 12, uh, Jesus makes this statement. He says, the hour has come. In other words, the time is now. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And and so you realize that that time is now, this time that Jesus had been telling his disciples about when he would go to Jerusalem. He was there. When he would go to Jerusalem and and when he would be um, uh, betrayed, when he would be examined falsely by the religious leaders, when he'd be killed, when he'd rise from the dead. That was the hour. This was the time. His coming had pointed to this was the time, the hour had come. And now, you see, during this moment, this evening, it's one of the greatest, most profound eavesdropping events that any human being could be a part of, to listen in to this time, this evening, that Jesus would spend with his disciples when he knew full well exactly what was going to be happening, that he would go to this deep humiliation where he would suffer pain, where he would suffer 
unjustly, where he would suffer betrayal by enemy and friend, where most significantly he would suffer the very wrath of God. And so you see now it's that night that Jesus meets here with his disciples. The disciples, it was the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And it says, having loved his own, he certainly did. He had indeed loved his own. These who were his, these these particular ones, he had loved them. He'd chosen them. He'd been faithful to teach them. He had kept them. He had been with them all this time. He had loved them. And now it says, he loved them to the end. That is to say, he would love them to the end of his life. He would love them to the end of their life. He would love them forever. Some versions translate that expression, he loved them to the end, in, 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 in a helpful way, a valid way. He would show them the full extent of his love, that is how far his love would go, the full extent of his love. That's what he was about to show them. And so we get the picture that Jesus is, is looking at that moment and that evening, but he's looking on to the next day as well. And all of that, he's going to show them the full extent of, their, of his love for them. He's going to love them to the very end faithfully. That's what he would, that's what he would do. Now notice, John is very explicit about this, that Judas was there the one who would betray him. So all of this being set up, Passover night, you get the picture, Passover table, thinking about deliverance, thinking about what took place in the ancient time in their history of deliverance out of Egypt, out of slavery, by way of Moses and all of that. There they were with this one who had loved them, would continue to love them in ways that no one would even be able to comprehend. And then... This betrayer was there as well. And what took place next was breathtaking. We know, we know the culture. You, know, you, you listen to this. Many of you heard this perhaps tens if not hundreds of times. Thought about this. Read this. Heard sermons on this. Sunday school classes. Taught this. All of that. So we, we know the culture. We know that people would walk around. And we know that when they would walk around, their feet would get dirty. Thus, if they were coming to a dinner party or something like that, it was a custom that there would be a basin of water, there would be a towel. And in certain occasions, many occasions, there would be a slave there, a servant there, a slave there really, who would wash their feet. Good thing to do. It seems odd to us, but, but not really. I mean, if you go to someone's home, you wipe your feet. You may even take off your shoes. You may wash your hands, especially in this flu season. And so there's all kinds of things that we do in that regard. This is what they did. And, and, and yet what, what, what makes it odd to us is, is in the culture, it was the job of a slave. It was something that, that was so lowly to do that, in fact, uh, some of the rules said that it, it couldn't even be a Jewish slave. It had to be a Gentile slave who would do the washing of the feet, it was considered that lowly. And then, and then you get a kind of a picture on that. If you come to my house, I don't want to take your shoes off you, right? If you want to take them off, that would be fine. But I'd rather not get down there and do that. I don't want to get that close. Uh, but in those days, of course, they walked around. Their, 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 their feet got dusty, got muddy, got dirty. So it was a common thing to do, but a rather mm, gross thing to do as well. It was the job 
of a slave. Now, what happened here in this night, of course, is all the disciples came. There would be a low table. They'd be laying on mats probably around this table. And no one, it seems, thought about the custom, the, the, the courtesy of even washing their own feet, let alone washing the feet of another, except for Jesus. Notice it was while the supper was going on, he rose from the supper. You get the picture there. And we see it, of course. Jesus, looking like Jesus, dressed like Jesus, the place, no doubt, of the master. If you looked at the picture before he washed their feet, if you looked at that picture, you could probably figure out who was the teacher here, who's the master here, and all of that. But in a moment, he would strip down, and then you'd look at another picture, and you would think he was the slave, he was the servant, he was the one who took the basin, who took the towel, who went and, and, and washed their feet. Uh, that's what he did. And what we see really in this is a picture, a parable, really, of the incarnation we see in this is precisely what I read earlier in our service and we've read many times together from Philippians in chapter 2 concerning our Lord Jesus. See it says who, Philippians 2 verse 6 though he was in the form of God. Now that little expression form of God doesn't mean just sort of outward form but the, the, the exact as the author of Hebrews puts it representation of the nature of God. He was, in fact, equal with God. Paul lays it out like that for us. He says, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was equal to God. But, but what he did in the incarnation was that he did not regard that equality, that right that he had to the honor that was his as God. He didn't grasp that, that. But he emptied himself. Now, when he emptied himself, he didn't empty himself of his deity. He emptied himself by actually taking on something else that was lowly, that was below him. That is, he took on humanity. Notice how Paul puts it. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Note the picture on that night that Jesus washed their feet. That's exactly it. There he was in the form of God. I mean, he was dressed as the Lord and Master. But when he emptied himself, he took on the form of a servant. He looked like a servant. That's what he did, you see. And he became this servant. Now, on that night, his servanthood, he humbled himself in such a way as to wash their feet, to be like a slave like no one else in that room would do. But that was simply pointing to something else. A humility that he was about to experience. Where he would serve by way of taking upon himself the guilt of sinners. And experiencing the wrath of God. That was... Jesus at that point. Up till this point, in John's gospel, uh, he, he, he laid this out for us. He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's, that's this. And, and then there would be times, if you read through the gospel of John, I urge you to do that. It's a good thing anytime to read through these first 12 chapters before we get to this chapter 13. In, in these first 12 chapters, you see what John is, is laying out is this Jesus God man. We see his humanity, but, but yet we see glimpses of his divinity. Uh, signs, various ones, he says, that he lays out in 
chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine and the, the disciples see his glory and say, wow, look at that. He, he takes that which is common and makes it special and, that, and, and the best of the wine. And so he makes all things new. In chapter 4, he heals this Roman centurion's son who is very sick. He heals him at his word. In chapter 5, he takes this man who had been an invalid for 38 years and he heals him. In chapter 6, he, he feeds 5,000 people with just a little bit of food and, and then he walks on water. And in chapter 8, um, or chapter 9, he, he gives new eyes to a man who's blind. Chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. All of these things, we can see his great glory. We can see his divinity. And then at this moment, the the master becomes the servant. And, and, And we look, what's wrong with this picture? Why did he do that? Say, well, their feet were dirty. And that's probably true. But he had another reason. Notice how he puts it in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. I don't want to get too corny here, but there's a bit of ascension there if you're really interested. Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed, he said, are you if you do them. And so he's saying, I did this as an example. This is how I want you to live. This is how I want you to be. This is how I want you to relate to one another. I want you to wash each other's feet. Now you can debate whether that's another sacrament or not. But his point is clear. I I want you to love each other like this. I want you to humble yourself like this. I I want you to, to see yourself as the servant of another. I want you to cast in some sense your grasping at your rights. And I want you to cast that aside. And I want you to really love uh, one another. And and he he lays this out. And he says, this is for your joy. Because you see, it isn't just knowing about this. You're blessed. That is, you're filled with joy. That's the word blessed means happy. It means that you're blessed if you do them. In other words, if you don't live like this, there's no blessing. If you don't live like this, there's no real joy. In in, In other words, if you don't humble yourselves and serve one another, you really, really won't know life. Because you see, what what Jesus is about to lay out for them as we come into this upper room discourse is he begins to teach them. He teaches them many things. He he teaches them about what's going to happen to them. He teaches about about where he's going to go. He teaches about what he's going to do when he gets there. He teaches them about how they're to be dependent upon him and, and pray. He, he teaches them that he isn't going to leave them. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to them and all of that. And that's great. But, but the guts of it in terms of how they're to relate to one another, he says, I want to give you a new commandment. And this new commandment, one says is isn't new at all. They heard it. But there's a new spin to it. This is a new commandment I give to you, that you are to love one another. Now, they would have 
expected him to say, to love one another, to love your neighbor as yourself. So to love one another as yourself. But he doesn't say that. He says, here's the newness of this. He says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Which means, I want you to humbly wash each other's feet. I want you to humbly serve one another at the humblest, most menial, menial, dirtiest parts of life. So much so that there isn't anything in serving another and loving another that's below you. This is about this washing of the feet and their minds would have been the lowest thing that a person could do in service to another. He says, I want you to love one another like that. That's how he, that's how he put it. Now you so this would go at cross purposes with the disciples. Um, they weren't quite like that. And I smile when I say that because really the truth is that we're not quite like that. We help each other. We serve each other. A good bit of it, it's easy for us. It is convenient for us. We can, we can do it without too much difficulty. And in fact, there's some good affirmation to that. We, we feel good about ourselves. We help each other. We, we feel good about ourselves. We're loved in return. We have this wonderful mutual relationship. And, and that describes much of love and should. Describes much of how we interact with one another and should. But, but he says, you know, it's, it's more than just that. You see, Judas was there. The disciples really liked attention and glory. I read this dispute that occurred between the disciples, and I, I could have chosen a number of passages like this. There's, there's one in Matthew chapter 20. There's one in Mark chapter 10. Very similar, where the disciples are debating, debating who is the greatest, and they want to be the greatest, and they ask Jesus if they can be the greatest to sit on his right hand or his left. In fact, the mom of James and John, or James yeah, James and John come to uh, 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 Jesus and, uh, and ask if her sons could be uh, in this great position. So they even had a lobbyist. And Jesus says, well, it's good to want to be great in a sense, but you just don't understand what that means. What it means is that the first shall be last. But it means you must humble yourselves like this. And serve, and serve each other. Now, the reason I chose the one on Luke is that happened on the night, that very night around that table. <laughs> we don't know exactly when in proportion to this. Probably, it would seem to me, must have happened perhaps before. And Jesus then used this. I don't know since Luke has it but doesn't have the foot washing. And Jesus has the foot washing but doesn't have this. But it was all on that same night. And there they were. And we resonate. We relate. We relate to that. And we talk about this notion of humility. It's, it's not a false humility. David Wells, Professor Gordon Conwell, uh, wrote a book um, a while ago called Losing Our Virtue, Why the Church Must Recover Its Moral Vision. And he wrote this about humility. He said, humility has nothing to do with depreciating ourselves and our gifts and our ways we know to be untrue. Even humble attitudes uh, can be masks of pride. We want a humble button to wear. 
and uh, be honored. Humility is that freedom from our self which enables us to be in positions in which we have neither recognition nor importance, neither power nor visibility, and even experience deprivation and yet have joy and delight. It's the freedom of knowing that we are not in the center of the universe, not even the center of our own private universe. You see, humility is being free from self-absorption. It's living what I call for myself, this is my little term for it, to try to live unselfconsciously, if you will. Stop worrying about myself, how everything reflects upon me, how everything comes back to me, you see. I want to be free of that so that I can consider the interests of others. That was why Paul spoke in Philippians 2 of the incarnation and the work of Christ. He says, he says, if you're united to Christ, if he lives within you, see, this is the one who lives in you. This is the one whose mind, whose attitude lives in you. So live it out. And so he begins his admonition by saying, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and, and sympathy, he says, listen, we're really one together in this. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, the same attitude, the same heart, if you will, the same understanding about life, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And he said, here's that mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Thus, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Wash each other's feet. Love each other really like that. See, love hmm, requires humility. If I think I'm better than you, then I'll simply be condescending in my relationship with you. If I think that you're below me, I may never even notice you. I may never even look to you to help. But there's this sense of humility that says, no, I'm not below. Look at Jesus. And he was above. So, so he emptied himself. He took on a form that wasn't originally his. And he loved in that kind of, of humility. And, and you notice, too, that we speak of, of love. Um, mm, it's a huge word. For instance, in, in um, Colossians, and uh, chapter 3 and verse 12, the apostle writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also Forgive. In other words, he says, I want you to live compassionately, meaning I want you to see the needs of others and help them. That's what compassion is. Compassion must help. I almost always, probably 80% of the time, use this passage in a wedding sermon as I talk with, with, with couples. This is what love really is, you see. It, it's compassionate. It's, it's seeing a need. I love the illustration of Jesus uh, when he sees a man with leprosy. And the scripture says that he had compassion on him and reached out and touched him. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, many of, 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 of the miracles of Jesus, you know, the basis of compassion, he sees a need and he can't not help. 
And, and compassion always touches. It reaches out and touches. It doesn't just look. It doesn't just think. It doesn't just pray. It doesn't just feel bad. It touches. It has to touch. And, and there was this man with leprosy. And for Jesus to love him, he had to do what no one else would do. Nobody wanted to touch this man. You, you think about, when was the last time this guy had been touched by another human being? But compassion means touch. So Jesus in a sense, humbled himself. He risked himself. Take it like that. He risked himself as a human being. I'm going to touch this man. So to, so to, to be humble, to be meek, uh, I'm sorry, to be kind, to think the best of, desire the best of another, even if it means uh, your own difficulty, the inhumility and meekness and patience, to bear with one another, to forgive each other. And if you had to take one word and sum up all of those, had to take one word and tie those all together, here's the one word that the Holy Spirit gives us for that. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In other words, it isn't either be compassionate or kind or humble or meek or patient or bear with one another or forgive one another. It's it's and. Because you see, all of those things then are wrapped up, tied together in love. That's what love really is. Love is compassionate. Love is kind. Love is meek. Love is gentle. Uh, Love is patient. Love is forgiving. It's all of those. In fact, when Paul writes of the work of the Holy Spirit in us, he writes of what he calls the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. It's singular. He doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit are. He says the fruit of the Spirit is. And then he lists a number of attributes. He begins with love because that's the priority. That's, as he would understand it, the summing up one. But he says love is also joy, you see. Love is joy. From the Spirit, we have, we have joy. We, we're blessed in doing this. It's, it's peace. What measure of peace would be necessary in Jesus to love the disciples on that night and wash their feet? Think about what he was facing. When, when my kids were around, there were certain days when they'd begin whispering among themselves and they would say to Karen, Dad's pacing. And what that meant was, Dad's self-absorbed. <laughs> Dad's preoccupied. There's something on his mind. And, and, and the house could blow up and he wouldn't notice because there's something on his mind. And I think of Jesus on this night and I think about the fact that there had to be something on his mind. He was about to experience the wrath of God. And we could see that in the Garden of Gethsemane as he, as he, as he prayed and, 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 and the emotion of that moment of, of how heavy that was, had to be, should have been on his mind. But the amount of peace at this moment to set that aside and care for his disciples' feet. Love is peace, you see. It's being contented with one's own place, station, moment in time, to be freed, to love. It's patience. None of patience Jesus had. He knew Peter was going to react. Patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Self-control. 
You see, love is always self-control. There's, there's a sense in which it's always setting itself aside to be interested in others. That takes what kind of self-control again on this night with these men? With all that's going on in Jesus' life? He would knew, know that they're of the mindset to think they're great, even in his presence. That they're of the mindset that on the biggest night of his life, he would take his best friends from the group to go and pray, and they would fall asleep. They wouldn't even be able to, to capture the moment with him and share that with him. So the self-control to set all that he knew about them aside and care for their feet. That's love, you see. That's love. Now Jesus had another reason for doing what he did. Verse 20. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. In other words, he's going to send his disciples. In fact, in the next, uh, at the end, in chapter 20, he, he says to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. They're going to be sent in his name. And he says, if you're going to be sent in my name and anyone receives you in my name, that is, receives you because you're carrying the gospel, they receive me. Now, that's a pretty heady thing. To think that as we go in the name of Jesus, we go taking the gospel, that if anybody receives us and that gospel through us, they're receiving eternal life. That's huge. And he says, well, be careful. Don't get puffed up. Because if you get puffed up, then you can't represent me at all. Here's how you represent me. As one who's humble. As one who knows that the universe doesn't revolve around you, but rather revolves around me, Jesus says. You have to be that way. You have to cast yourself aside, if you will. You can't be self-absorbed. None of that. But really, then, to come to me to represent me. That's why I had us pray this morning this, uh, this prayer of humility. Let me give you the unabridged version. It was written by the secretary to Pope Pius X in the early 20th century. And when I, when I first came across this prayer, I don't even know how I found it. Usually these things find me. Uh, because I need them. I need help in my praying, so I find these prayers. They find me. When I first read this, I must say, I thought, ooh, I don't like that. And then I thought, that's probably the reason I should be praying it. But secondly, because these things, some of these things at least aren't bad in themselves. You know, I should desire to be loved. I mean, God has made us human beings to be loved. And being loved should be a joy. And we should, he loves us. And he tells us he loves us. We're to receive that. We're to enjoy that. We're to be loved by one another. That's a good thing, you see. And, and, and I want to please him. And, and so I want to hear, uh, well done, my good and faithful servant, that kind of thing. That, that's all a good thing. But, but then I realized in my sin, and I, I pervert all of that. And, and that's what I must get away from. So this prayer goes like this. Deliver me, O Jesus, 
from the desire of being esteemed, from the desire of being loved. That is, by being manipulated by the fact that I'll do anything if somebody loves me, even that which is harmful to them, if they'll love me. From the desire of being extolled or being decorated, celebrated, the desire of being honored, that I want to be put in that place, you see. He's to be put in that place. If I'm sent by him, he's to be put in that place. I'm to boast in him. They're to boast in him. I'm I'm sort of to fade in the background. The old John the Baptist thing, he must increase, I must decrease. That's the deal, you see. And that's where my joy is. When When I see others know him, that's what our joy should be. When we see others reflect him, when we see others are blessed by him, that should be our joy, even if we're having a bad day. The desire of being praised from the desire of being preferred to others, from the desire of being consulted. Everybody has to ask my opinion. From the desire of being approved, you see. Setting myself aside, desiring the best for the others. From the fear, deliver me, of being humiliated, so afraid that I'll be humbled, you know. I don't, I don't want people to see weakness in me. And so therefore, there are times when I don't help others because I'm afraid to. I'm afraid I can't really help them. And so, 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 so I'm afraid I'll be humbled, humiliated in the midst of this. So, so I, don't, I don't even try. I don't even go, you see. Deliver me from that. Let me, let me fall over myself trying to help another. Fear of being despised. Well, if I help them, they won't like me. If I help them, I'll do it wrong. I'll, I'll help them. They'll think I'm meddling. But, but they need my help. And so fear, the fear of being despised, from suffering rebukes. The fear of being calumniated. Calumniated, it, it means to being falsely accused. I'm afraid that I'll do my best, I'll try something, and, and people will misunderstand, and therefore they'll accuse me of something. The fear of being forgotten, the fear of being ridiculed, the fear of being wrong, the fear of being suspected, my own motives being suspected. So grant me the grace, God, to desire that others may be loved more than I. That's okay. Others may be esteemed more than I. You see, when I'm at that point, I'm not thinking of me. I'm just thinking about the fact that they're being loved. They're being esteemed. That's great. And in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease. That's okay. That others may be chosen while I'm set aside. That others may be praised while I go unnoticed. That others may be preferred to me in everything. And this one I love because you could feel the tension as it was written. That others may become holier than I, provided that I become as holy as I should be. <laughs> I don't want to give that up. I can't. That's... But that they, but I rejoice in the holiness of others. How many times do we see others esteemed, others honored, others blessed? And we can't enjoy that because we're saying, that didn't happen to me. That's not like my life is. He said, no, 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 set yourself aside, humble yourself, and rejoice with those who rejoice. Desire, if you will, their blessedness, their rejoicing. Now, how do we get to that? Well, if you're paying attention, you'll notice I skipped some verses. Verse 7, verse 6. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. You'd expect Peter to say, so this is just like everything else then in my life. 
So Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Now, in a sense, we, 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 we sort of empathize with Peter at that point. He, he sort of gets the incongruity of this situation. He sees this isn't how it ought to be. You're the Lord. I'm, I'm not. You shouldn't be doing this. Of all the people in the world that shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing We should be washing your feet. I mean, I, I, so you get that. And, and there's some sense of Peter going, yes, yes, yes. Uh, uh, you're right, Peter, in that, in, that, in that sense. That's why Jesus said you're not going to really understand this. But then Jesus uh, didn't say, Peter, just go with the flow. You're messing up my illustration. He didn't say that. He said something very strong here. Again, takes your breath away. You think about it. He said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, he's saying, Peter, if I don't wash you, you're going to be just like Judas. You have no share with me. And if I'm Peter, I'm thinking, well, you know, Jesus, it doesn't seem to me like it's that big a deal about my feet. That I either have clean feet and are with you, or I don't have clean feet. And I'm, I've had dirty feet many of the day that we've traveled. You know, so what's the big deal? Such a, I mean, I could see you saying, Peter, shut up and sit down. But, but not, if you don't let me wash you, I, you know you're out. So, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said, no, no, I'm not going to do this your way. I know that makes sense to you too. In a minute ago, it didn't make sense that I washed anything. Now it makes sense that I washed everything. Peter, 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 Peter. Trying to do, you'll get this later. You really will. You'll see it as will everybody else who comes after you. And so Jesus said, the one who's bathed doesn't need washed except his feet. Uh, but it's completely clean. And you're clean, but not every one of you. Judas isn't. Basically saying, saying this. And Peter would know this just from experience. He cleaned up before he went to the Passover meal, no doubt. He was, he was clean. His feet got dirty. Right? So just from a practical matter, ankle up, he was fine. Ankle down, not so much. So he says, you get this, you're clean. I clean your feet. You're good to go. Right? Better good to stay here. Good to have this meal with us. There's something deeper here. And they would know, they would understand. And we get it too. We get the fact that when we believe upon Jesus, we're born of the Spirit. We come into Him, if you will. Believe into Him. That we are cleansed. We are washed. We are clean, you see. But we also know that we continue to sin. And we know that when we continue to sin, we don't lose that, that general bath, that, that big washing, that, that what the Bible would call justification, that we're right with God. We don't lose that. We're His child, but we do sin. So what happens? From time to time, daily, sometimes more than that, daily, we, we need to confess our sins. Why? Because we need to have our feet washed, not our whole body, but our feet washed. Why? Because, because from a legal standpoint, We've been cleansed, we've been pardoned, we've been justified. But in a relational way with God, we, we need our feet washed. We need to, to be reminded again of our sin. And we need to be reminded again that we need to be forgiven. And so this, this foot washing takes place in our lives. It had to take place with Peter. He's saying, Peter, yes, you're clean, but, but there's something you don't understand. Even after you've been bathed, your, your sin and you'll need to be just cleaned up cleansed, forgiven. 
And that's an all the time thing. It'll just be true till I come again and you're perfected. Now that, you see, is utterly necessary if we're going to get this whole thing. And it's utterly necessary because, you see, when we're reminded that we need to have our feet cleaned, when we're reminded that we need to be cleansed of the feet, not the whole body, but the feet, it's a reminder, I'm a sinner saved only by grace. That humbles us and keeps us humble all the time. Sometimes people complain, not any of you, obviously, but sometimes people complain. Why is it that every week we have this prayer of confession right there in the same place? (laughs) Because you need your feet washed. Because I need my feet washed. It's a, A, it's true, I need to confess my sin, but B, I need to be reminded that I need to confess my sin. And when I confess my sin, I'm saying it, yes, to God, but also to you all as well. You could save up all those confession prayers that we pray and you could say, Bill, I heard one time you say this (laughs) in your confession. I heard you say this, I heard you say this, I heard you say this. So you're no better than me because that's true of me too. And yes, you're right. And so you see, Jesus voluntarily humbled himself because he was greater We really don't need to voluntarily humble ourselves because we really aren't greater. We get confused because of our performance relative one to another by the way we clean up relative one to another. But the truth of the matter is we're all the same. None greater than the other, none lesser. Thus, we're simply to live this way. And he says, now, what you need to do, this is that voluntary act of taking on the cross of Jesus as we sung, to die, to set ourselves aside. That self-absorption, that self-centeredness, that self-consciousness in that sense, that self-concern, set it aside and love. So as we come to these passages, it's no coincidence that Jesus would speak of the Holy Spirit. In fact, when he sent them, he said this, John chapter 20, verse 21, peace be with you as the Father has sent me Even so, I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. We've received the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit in us. To enable us. To set ourselves aside. Not grasp the place we think we have. And really love. And when we do that, then we're really representing Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, I pray for me for us. That very prayer that we had prayed, God, that you would free me, us, from the desire of being esteemed, of being loved, of being extolled, of being honored, of being praised, of being preferred, of being consulted, of being approved. Deliver me, free me from the fear of being humiliated, despised, rebuked, maligned, forgotten, ridiculed, wronged, suspected. That you would grant me the grace to rejoice when others are loved, when others are blessed, when others are esteemed, when others are praised, when others are preferred, when others are holy. God, enable me Enable us to set aside ourselves, our self-concern, and love. We're grateful, God, that you have so loved us. And we pray that we may know that love and that others may know it as well. God, we pray for those who are sick and those who are physical difficulty, Melissa Foster, God. We pray for her, knowing that even after this surgery of valve replacement and this tear being repaired in her heart that she's back in the hospital, God, I pray for her that you would bless her on this day. She would know she's loved by you, know she's loved by us, enable us to, to help her. And we pray, God, that you would heal her and restore her to to good health. And for others, Father, in a similar, even if less desperate situation. Father, for those whose marriages are in difficulty, for those whose jobs are uncertain, for those who face unemployment, for those who find themselves in financial difficulty, God, help us to help them and to love them in right and good ways, ways that are really helpful to them. Free us from our self-concern that we may love, that we may love them. Father, for those who face emotional difficulties, that we can help them, enable them to know that they're loved by us and loved by you. Father, for every difficulty of life, may we never hold ourselves up so that we can have an excuse not to love, but Father, that we would be humbled by virtue of knowledge of our own sin and need, humbled by the very work of Christ, that we may love this, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.